everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Okay, gentlemen, I am back, and if you have any guidance on the screen uh, activation, I'll do that. If not, I'll just go ahead with the audio. You know, I'm not sure. I think we're going to be messing around more than we are making progress by just trying to guess what to do with an iPhone. It could be that with the <laughs> iPhone, it's not allowing the camera use. So let's just, if you can see the screen, and you can see that I've got out your first slide, which is just basically just showing the title of the of the session. And can you see that? Are you seeing that, Jeffrey? Are uh, you now yes, seeing so, the next one? Yes, so I, I do see that, and I'm ready to go ahead. And uh, as you and I corresponded yesterday, I'm, I have a formal presentation, and I'm also – I very much enjoy your informal interview uh, format that you've used with other, with other speakers, so we can – we can uh, gravitate back and forth between the two as the conversation directs us. Uh, so do you want to start by, uh, by teeing this up, and I'll uh, yeah. take it from there? I will. I, I, we're gonna, let's just do a, uh, sort of a hybrid, as I said. And I've, I've looked at all your slides, and I actually have questions on several of them. So we're going to kind of do both for everybody. I think they're all going to enjoy that. Excellent. Um, so, Jeffrey, we have not – met and um, we actually have never even spoken before so that's fairly unusual everybody we've, we've corresponded by email and Jeffrey is a member of the community and frankly he actually did something we love and we want a whole bunch of you to do it too he volunteered to do a session for us which we are usually always reaching out to people and saying hey you've got a great story you know would you come on and talk to us but Jeffrey um, went out and, and volunteered and that's awesome. So let me ask, because I've got your bio, but the rest of the people don't. Why don't you just take take five minutes and tell everybody both about yourself, both you know personally and as your professional career, and tell us where you're where you're at in both of those. Okay, I am going to uh, accept half of your offer. I'm going to start out telling you about my professional background, but I'm going to go into my personal okay. background in the presentation because I think it. I, I'm trying. I want to set a stage because. As the title indicates, uh, thinking globally and acting locally is becoming ever more relevant because this characterizes a, a very significant shift that I'm personally going through in my life right now uh, because much of my work was national and global professionally for the past 40 years of my career, and I'm now becoming much more grounded in what is happening locally, and that, that is the essence of what I'd like to discuss with you today. So professionally, um, I am a professor at Columbia University, I'm an adjunct professor, and I've been teaching at Columbia for probably almost 15 years now. I teach courses in corporate sustainable development, sustainable agriculture, systems theory and sustainability, natural capital and environmental markets, a whole constellation of topics around building sustainable organizations essentially very much focused on the business side whether it be multinational corporations small local manufacturers global agribusiness companies and individual family farms uh, so my focus is professionally has not been very much on community development it has been 
on the business side. And my work began uh, probably in the 19, early 1980s. I studied public policy at the New School University in New York. I was in the second public policy program established in the United States, and I was in the second graduating year. So it was a very new, a very new field. Uh, the field of public policy was, was invented by Robert McNamara, who is known for far less celebrated feats like um, keeping us in the Vietnamese War and uh, a lot of the atrocities which, which resulted from that. But he also was, uh, was quite a student of government and developed a field called public policy, which was something of a contrast to planning because it was, rather than developing grand plans and attempting to implement grand plans, I'm sorry, grand plans, public policy was characterized as the, the art of the quick and dirty. And basically what that meant is get into a public situation, understand what's going on, understand the issues, understand the players, and try to come up with a suite of actions that can be implemented in a fairly expeditious manner to attend to the issue at hand. And I was very enamored by that. As a, as a young person, I, I was very excited about public, about planning, but it seemed very burdensome. I had uh, friends who were a little bit older than I, and they uh, they were involved in these grand master plans that often ran, ended up in books that sat on the shelf and gathered dust, and I, I did not want to do that. So I was drawn to the field of public policy, uh, studied in a two-year intensive program, and then went off to uh, uh, to the <laughs> to the private sector, and that was because uh, I graduated. Uh, during the Ronald Reagan administration, and Ronald Reagan, who had didn't have much more love for government than than Donald Trump, was systematically, as unfortunately was seen today, dismantling the U.S. EPA and the uh, the Solar Energy Research Institute, uh, organizations that I very much wanted to work for, but the opportunities simply weren't there. So I went into industry, literally kicking and screaming. It was the the worst thing in the world. I had no interest in doing it, and uh, I felt like I was in abysmal failure because I couldn't get a job in, in the public sector. Uh, so I went to work for ITT Corporation, and I worked in their telecommunications group for about six years. And my last position there was as the uh, the deputy man the deputy director for international facilities planning. And what that basically meant was I would uh, would work on the planning for international cable and satellite systems that the company used as part of its international telecommunications network. And I learned in those six years a lot about business. And it was not where I wanted to be, but it was a seminal influence to me, for me in my career. And I don't think my career would ever go, have gone in the direction that it did eventually go in uh, were it not for those six years in the corporate world. Because I, come, I came to learn that uh, the corporate world was not consummate evil. It didn't sit around conspiring how to hurt people and damage economies. Uh, yes, there were some elements of that, as there are today, but corporations, now this is going to sound like a joke given um, the Citizens United case here in the United States uh, that basically gave corporations the right as citizens to to have a role in the public, uh, in, in, in politics. But uh, in my context, uh, what I learned in the corporate world was that corporations were made up of people, and they acted in very in, in ways that varied almost as dramatically as people uh, people's per, uh, actions varied. And I would see companies in the same sector with similar market shares performing differently and driven by radically different drivers 
as you look from company to company. Uh, so I realized that there were good companies, the companies that were trying to bring valuable services to society, to society, trying to do so in a way that was somewhat responsible. And uh, I remember uh, a story when I was working at ITT, I was very active with the Sierra Club. And uh, I got ridiculed about that quite a bit by my corporate colleagues, not, you know, not, not in a horrible way, but just a, a teasing way. And it was sort of the running joke that there's the hippie among us who, uh, who hugs trees. But during my time at ITT, the first Superfund list was, was released. And that, for those of you who are not familiar with Superfund, Superfund uh, was a national program to identify contaminated sites and develop uh, plans of action to clean up those sites, uh, primarily by identifying what were called principal responsible parties, or PRPs, people who, were, who had contributed to the pollution, who were then uh, compelled to pay to help clean up uh, these contaminated sites. They were waste sites, they were manufacturing sites. And what had happened was we relocated our company to New Jersey from New York, and many of our senior executives moved to a town in New Jersey called Freehold. And the Freehold landfill was identified as one of the Superfund sites. So literally the next morning when I got to my office, there was a line outside of my office of corporate executives, Brooks Brothers suits, wringing their hands, standing online to talk to me because I was the only environmentalist they ever met, saying, what does this mean? What should we do? Are our children in jeopardy? Uh, how do we deal with this? And it was a dramatic change because these people realized that I that I knew something that they needed to know, and they were concerned because they were family members, they were real people, and they were concerned about the well-being of their families. And that created a bit of a shift because after that, I was called in, in something of an ad hoc fashion whenever the company had to deal with an environmental issue. Uh, but I really didn't want to be there. Um, I wanted to be in the public sector, and I. Um, I uh, eventually was able to get a position with the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. I was brought on board initially to set up a water metering program for the city because the city of New York, which has eight, had at the time 8 million inhabitants, did not have a, a universal water metering program. Uh, there were some businesses that had meters, some individuals that had meters, but most buildings, uh, residential, commercial, industrial, uh, I'm sorry, industrial did have meters, but most commercial residential buildings did not have meters, and there was an arcane system that would calculate how much you would pay for water based upon the frontage of the building, the number of toilets, the number of sinks, and obviously not a good representation of water use. And we were facing uh, stress on our water supplies, and we needed to build new reservoirs and new, new aqueducts. And we'd go to rural communities, and they basically would say to us, how dare you ask us to give you our water when you're not even managing the use of water? So we set up this program. I was put in charge of running this program. Uh, that was very successful. We set up the program, metered the city, and then I went on to uh, work on air quality issues. Uh, we, we had apartment house incinerators in New York that were major sources of pollution. I was in charge of the program to shut down apartment house incinerators. We also had problems with dry cleaners located in residential buildings using very toxic substances. We, we were very active in working with the industry to change the, the industrial process that was used and to uh, provide assistance to dry cleaners to uh, transition to more uh, to better practices and new technology. And uh, that, was, uh, that was about uh, 10 years of my life doing that work. And then from there, I went on to uh, I hope I don't miss anything here, to work for Cornell University. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm missing, I'm missing a very important one. From, 
Uh, while I was at New York City DEP, I became very much interested in working with businesses because I had a corporate background, because I learned the lessons that I had just mentioned to you. So uh, from there, I, uh, I gravitated away from more regulatory-related work toward corporate engagement work. And what I, what I, the very first thing I did toward my career eventually in sustainability and regenerative economies was saying to my management, I think we'd get a lot more with honey uh, and we need to bring in companies that were not in compliance and sit down with them and try to figure out how we can help them comply. So when we had a company that was uh, committing uh, air, air quality, mostly air quality violations, it was my job to bring in the companies and sit down and have conferences to explore the problems, tell them why, why we're concerned, what regulations and legislation they're, they're violating, and to help them either through technical assistance or financial assistance if they needed it to change their processes. And that worked out really well. Uh, the program uh, was successful in bringing a number of companies, helping them solve their problems. But we also realized that the hi, I'm here from government, I'm here to help you, didn't quite fly. That we were both the regulator and providing technical assistance. And it was very hard to build trust and uh, we needed a different mechanism. So I developed a technical assistance program that uh, that became part of something called the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, which is a, natural pro uh, a national program run out of the Department of Commerce, their National Institute for Standards and Technology. And I developed the first pollution prevention energy assistance program that was part of this national network. I established it in New York and I contributed to building out the program as a national program and ran that for a number of years uh, working with manufacturers in New York City uh, from industries such as electroplating, woodworking, uh, metal finishing. Uh, New York, although it's not dominated by manufacturing today, it still has a, a, a robust manufacturing sector and many of these companies were small companies that were facing a lot of competitive pressure and environmental requirements were, were very difficult for them. And in the past, when you had an environmental problem, uh, the only solution was basically to be the little Dutch boy, to go stick your finger in the dike, if you know the old uh, fairy tale. And, um, and that was basically control technology. And that basically provides nothing but added cost and complexity for a business. So what we did is we created one of the early pollution prevention programs, a forerunner to sustainable development, where we would sit down with companies and look at their industrial processes, look at the materials they were using, and try to eliminate the use of toxic materials, or if those materials were critical to the industrial process, develop ways of keeping those materials within the process, reusing materials, uh, developing systems that would use those materials much more efficiently, and that was essentially what pollution prevention was, and that evolved into sustainability over the years. And we worked with uh, probably a couple hundred companies while I was in this position. And by the way, I should say that this position was not at DEP because we realized it couldn't be at DEP. I found a, a nonprofit that was working with manufacturers, and I brought this program to that nonprofit, and it was called the Industry and Technology Assistance Corporation in New York that was part of that national network I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, did that for a number of years, and that program, by the, way, by the way, was called an Industrial Extension Service, and as the name implies, it was modeled after the Agricultural Extension Service. So because I had experience in Industrial Extension, 
uh, I was uh, offered an opportunity to work for Cornell University to come on faculty at Cornell University and basically run a, a partnership between Cornell University and uh, USDA, which evolved also into a national program uh, called the National Integrated Water Quality Program, where Congress had uh, had mandated that the 162 land-grant universities around the country work closely with US EPA, US Environmental Protection Agency, and the US Department of Agriculture to bring their capacities to bear in a more efficient way to assist local communities, mostly rural communities, and farmers to be more environmentally responsible, focused on the area of water quality. So in that, I was the regional director of that program for about 10 years. Uh, we focused very much on the livestock sector and, of course, reducing pollution from that industry. And that program, unfortunately, was a, uh, a George Bush era program. So when the Obama administration came in, they were uh, suffering from a disease that those of you in government might know well. It's called Not Invented Here. And even though it was a good program and bringing value and we had the data to prove it, the program was, as they say in government parlance, zeroed out, meaning we lost our funding. But because I had a working relationship with EPA, I was invited to come, and I was actually located, physically located at EPA in New York, but I was running a program out of Cornell. Uh, but because I had a working relationship with EPA, I was invited to come to e the EPA Office of Water in Washington, D.C. and become a staffer at EPA. And I was brought on as a, uh, a regulator, regulating animal agriculture, which I had no interest in doing whatsoever. But to be frank, I needed a job. We, I lost my job because we lost our funding. And uh, I was told by my colleagues in New York at EPA that just go to Washington for a year, get in our system, and then we'll get you back here. But uh, unfortunately, EPA in New York was, um, was, was over their headcount, as they say, meaning they couldn't bring on new people because they, they had more staffing than they were legally allowed to have. So I never ended up back in New York. I stayed in Washington for six years. And I went to my boss one of the first days that I was there, and I said to her, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in a partnership program with agriculture, and I'd like to establish some sort of partnership project with agriculture. And she said, nah, that's not what we do. We're a regulatory office. You need to work on regulations. So that was very frustrating. I came back a, a few weeks later, and I said to her, I really want to do this. It's very important that we build collaboration with industry. I've got track record in this area. It works. We need to do this. And the next response was, well, Jeffrey, if it's really important to you, you could do that on your own time. And... I did, and went back a few months later and said, come on, we've got to make this core to our business. And she said, okay, you can allocate a portion of your time. You're up for your annual review. When you, when you do your, your, your plan of work for next year, put this in at 30% of your time. And to end the story, it became 100% of my time. I was part of, I, I became uh, the, the team lead for corporate partnerships focusing on agriculture at the US EPA Office of Water in Washington, D.C., I did that for about six years and uh, was getting very tired of commuting and wanted to be back in New York. And the, the political winds were shifting in Washington. I thought it was a good time to get out. So a couple of years ago, before the election, I, I left. I, I took early retirement. And I started teaching additional courses at Columbia. And I do a bit of private consulting. I'm on several nonprofit boards uh, here in New York excuse me, here in New York, which I'll talk about a bit later. And um, I'm very happily what's called semi-retired. Semi -retired. And by the way, 
the dictionary definition of semi-retired should be uh, you used to have a job that was roughly 45, 50 hours a week. Now you no longer have a full-time job and a full-time salary. So basically you're working all the time, <laughs> which is exactly what I do. I love it, but um, it, it is not the image of retirement on a golf course. It is lots of pri uh, uh, volunteer work, lots of underpaid work as a teacher. And once in a while, I actually get paid at a reasonable rate when I get a corporate client. Uh, so th that's my life now. I love it. Uh, I'm based partially in New York City, but also partially in upstate New York. And that's what I want to talk to later in my presentation. Super. Well, that was great. Um, that, I think everybody's got a good view. If you guys have got any questions, as I say usually, just throw them in here. I'll sort of, you don't worry about them, um, uh, Jeffrey. I'll, I'll monitor them, and if they're appropriate while Jeffrey's talking about something, I'll sort of throw it in. If it's better we do them at the end, we'll do it then. Um, oh, wait, Wayne, I love inappropriate questions. Throw them at me as well. Okay, well, we'll, we'll make sure that... I got to throw out a couple of coincidental, potentially people we might know. Um, you would have you would have followed him, but when you were working in New Jersey and with ITT, did you ever have any interaction with Chris Daggett, who served in a couple roles for for one period of time? He was the um, director of NJDT, and then President Reagan appointed him to be um, the regional administrator for Region One. So like I said, I think he probably preceded you, but I was just curious. He, he was a partner of mine for a number of years. So. Yes, I, I met him once or twice, knew about him, but n never actually worked with him. But, but he had a reputation, uh, a very good reputation. He was, he was quite a rebel in, in Region 1. He, he set the agenda there, and, uh, and they did a lot of very progressive things in Region 1, which is the Boston, New England region of EPA. And, uh, and Chris, Chris uh, shook things up a bit. In a, in a very yeah. good way. He also ran for governor of the state of New Jersey in the first election that Christie won as an independent and actually got as much, I think, as 33% of the vote. So yeah. he did, did really well. Anyway, a second name. Um, you, I guarantee you won't know this one, but, but our community has at least heard that this fellow did an interview with us. Um, and his name is Robert. Um, Kubala and Robert, it works for the city of New York in their wastewater and drinking water area. And he followed you, so you would not have probably run into him. But he was in the towers when, when the when the plane hit, and uh, on the 72nd floor, which is where his colleagues were, his gut told him, "I'm getting out of here," and he he violated everybody's recommendation and he ran down the, the stairway and when he reached the bottom the building was collapsing he went right to the front door there was a policeman behind a barrier 100 yards away or so that was just yelling get out of there and he went running towards this policeman right as the building came down and they actually got buried they were rescued very quickly but Robert actually has a uh, because of his experience there he still works for the city but he has a, a tilapia fish farm in Ghana, which is going back to local because that's where his home was. So he has gone back to Ghana. He doesn't live there. He still lives in New York, goes back and forth. And he has a fish farm there called Labaroff Farms. And we've interviewed him. I actually helped them do some consulting work with their fish farm there. Um, let's go to no, a couple I, other really 
Wade, by the way, Go I ahead. did not know, you know him, but I saw that that presentation, and it was excellent. And uh, and for those of you who are not from New York and not from the U.S., nine uh, eleven was a a dramatic had a dramatic impact on New York City in so many ways. And uh, the city actually has become more of a community as a result of it. And uh, and actually, one of my former bosses at, at DEP, New York City Department of Environmental Protection. A deputy commissioner was in the tower and unfortunately passed away uh, because of the incident. Yeah, it, it's hard to probably know anybody living in the city that wasn't first generation touched in some way. Um, yeah. Or you know, I, I was here in Denver when the when the, the um, killings occurred at um, boy, my brain's going dead. The high school, I'm not the Columbine, and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't know anyone that was killed, but I was one generation away. So I had several people that I knew that had friends or relatives that were, and that was just 13 people. Well, when you've got hundreds of people like you had um, in, the, in the tower circumstances, obviously it's gonna touch more people. Let's, yeah. um, let's go a little more personal here and take us back a little further. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your your childhood and specifically and if you've watched these you know i'm going to ask this when you <laughs> yes. were 15 years old a young adult tell us what you would have been doing on a beautiful afternoon when you didn't have to be in school you didn't have to be you know you just could be doing anything on your own what would we find jeffrey up there? I, I told my wife you were going to ask this question, and uh, and I'm always I'm always trying to prove to her how how solid a guy I am, and how I knew exactly what I wanted to do the day I popped out of the womb. Uh, so th so your question was perfect for that because basically what I was doing at what I would do at 15 would be get on my bicycle and head into the woods and hike and bike and just drink every experience in the best I could and that's exactly what I would do now if I had a day with nothing to do well you know this you know already the second half of my question which you just you're going to talk about personal a little bit later so I'll, I'll defer that one um, but I am going to ask this one in your let's say pre-college so high school and before Tell us about a person who influenced you in your professional area other than your father or your mother. So someone outside of the family that might have influenced you. Uh, well, I, I did make my list of seminal influences, but they were a bit later in life. So I'll, I'll tell you, the, it was an interesting one. Uh, my, my buddies and I uh, were not super academics. We, were, we weren't dumb kids. We, were, we, got, we, would get, we got through high school and college, but we were not. The, the shining shining stars. We were more socially oriented, but one of our friends, a fellow named Carrie, was was absolutely brilliant, and he was actually the Val Victorian in our high school and in the college he went to, and he was one of our buddies. and And when I would lament about caring about the environment and how horrible things were, he would say, "You know, you really need to look into planning and public policy. This is a way that you could have an influence instead of just complaining." And it was his direction, this is probably as a, a junior or a senior in high school, that inspired me to start looking into having an effect on public policy. And my first, because of him, wow. I, I volunteered for my first environmental organization, which was a group called World Hunger Year that was a group established by the singer Harry Chapin. And I actually got to meet Harry, which was an amazing experience. 
would you have, this is not a question I ask everybody, would you have um, labeled yourself or would others have labeled you as an activist when you were in your early development years? Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. I, uh, I, my, sem my dad was a ham radio operator and uh, he had this uh, radio room filled with equipment and I remember sitting in his, uh, in his radio room listening on his shortwave radio to public radio coverage of the Chicago uh, Chicago demonstrations during the 1968 Democratic Convention and uh, I don't know how many of you would remember this but there was a group called Chicago Transit Authority, a rock and roll group and one of their songs featured the chant from the, the rally which was the whole world is watching and I was one of the people, I was a 16 year old kid sitting in my dad's radio room listening to public radio coverage of the riots and it something clicked in me and I realized that uh, even though I come from a military family I realized that wait a minute I can't just take things on face value I need to ask questions and raise my voice and and honestly I think my personality somewhat crystallized at that stage and I I hope it's evolved but I, I think I knew what I was at 16 and it's been pretty much the same path ever since by the way, it's sounding like at least that we're exactly the same age. So I was 16 in 1968, and um, and so I'm I'm guessing that we're both in that range. What when, what's your birthday? February 20 February 28, 1952. Oh man, you're you're not, you're seven months older than me. You're the old guy. So I, I'm <laughs> September 1952. <laughs> Great. So no, I have to ask this one just because you set the stage for it. And when you said Chicago Transit Authority, I thought you might be saying something a little different. And I don't know if you saw this because I haven't interviewed him yet and I'm going to. A local resident friend of mine now, I didn't know him a year ago, but I met him six months ago or so, is Rennie Davis. So does Rennie ring uh, a bell? Yes. Related as, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I, I wasn't um, – I wasn't super radical, but I was on the left-wing school newspaper at City University in New York, and Rennie Davis was a guest speaker at an event, and I picked him up at the airport once. Oh, wow. Well, Rennie and his wife live in my little town of Berthoud, Colorado. He still has huge dreams, <laughs> and um, if you look him up, by the way, just to give everybody else kind of a little bit more of the story. There was a group called the Chicago Seven that came out of those riots, and they were the ones who were charged for a variety of different criminal offenses. They were they were jailed, and their trial became very public. And boy, I'll tell you, in today's world of social media, I mean, it would have been considered explosive in terms of how public it became. And most of the media stars of those days, especially more left-winging, ended up going to the trial. They were actually there in Chicago. Well, Rennie was one of this Chicago Seven. It included, and I'm not going to come up with all the names right now, but Bobby Sterles, who was a Black Panther, was the leader of the Black Panther. Um, oh, wow, help me on some of these, of some of the other seven. Um, oh, God, Abby, Abby, Abby Hoffman, Tom Hayden. Abby Abbott Hoffman, Bob Hayden. Um, so we've got four now. What are the other three? Let's get the uh, Jerry Rubin. Jerry Rubin. Yep, he's number five. Uh, well, anyway, I, you know, we've got some old that are Bob. Bob will probably come out of it. 
Bob actually, Bob Hayes just said, you mentioned Chris Daggett from New Jersey before finishing mentioning he was um, within New Jersey. Some of the, remember the CIA yippee from. <laughs> yes. Oh, yippee. Okay. He says yippee from 1968. Um, anyway, Rennie is going to be doing a project moving forward where he's also like you. He has seen the connectivity between local and global on the sustainability side. And he actually wants to do something here at our ranch. And we're really hopeful that something will come from that. So anyway, um, let's keep moving on. We can, we can talk forever. We don't want to do that. Um, a couple more personal questions, and then we'll move to your presentation. Um, tell, us about, um, tell us about somebody post-college, because you said you put together a list, unless it's in your presentation that had a great influence on you. And if it's in the presentation, just let's hold it. Is it in there? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, just in my notes. Um, uh, several. Uh, I, I there was. Uh, let me let me bear with me. I'm gonna want to find find the right spot in my notes. Uh, this was a, um, a rapid scribbling at the coffee shop this morning. <laughs> uh, bear with me one moment. I, I want to get to the right place here. Bob, where were you in 1968? While well, he's while well, Jeffrey's finding his spot. Bob, put on the chat where you were at again during the. 68 election. If everybody that's out there, if you were born before 1968, you remember it at all, put up where you were at or where you remember being in that 68 sure. um, Democratic convention. I have my uh, notes, uh, Wayne, if you want me to go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go uh, I've got some, a few interesting ones. Uh, uh, there was a fellow uh, who was my first contact in the environmental field a fellow by the name of Robert Alpern, and he's a bit of a local hero in New York City. Um, somehow I managed to get on an advisory committee for water quality in New York City, and Bob was the chairman of the committee, and he became my mentor, and this was probably back um, in the 1970s, and he wasn't a young man now, and he, then rather, and I met him at a board meeting of an organization here in New York called Clearwater, and he's still active. That's a group that um, was started by uh, Pete Seeger, uh, to protect the Hudson River, and Bob was my inspiration back then, and, and he's still going strong, probably close to 90 years old now, but he was yeah. very active in environmental issues in New York and uh, a bullweather, and uh, just kept kept the agenda moving forward, and, and he was a, a seminal influence on me as a young man, but a little bit more removed from my day-to-day -life, day -day life was a fellow named uh, Edward Abbey, who was a novelist and active with the Sierra Club. And I was active with Sierra Club, and Abby was an old desert rat uh, who um, was was quite a character. He wrote a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang, which many of you may know about. It's a novel about uh, uh, environmental activism that led to the establishment of a radical group called Earth First. Uh, but Abby was on the board of the Sierra Club, and he was a cantankerous old fellow and had a tremendous influence on me. And I highly recommend his books because um, not only was he a novelist, but he wrote wonderful accounts of being in the wilderness uh, his first of which was called Desert Solitaire. And what I loved about his work was that he was a radical, cantankerous, bitching and moaning activist, complaining about everything, active in every cause. And he every book would be infused with that, but also every book would be infused with uh, incredible descriptions of the wilderness and being embraced by the wilderness. And I, I love that mix of perspectives. 
and it's rare, and it really moved me back in the day. Another seminal influence was, influence was David Broward, who was the first executive director of Sierra Club, and I got to meet him as well as Abby a few times during my Sierra Club work, and uh, Broward was uh, started a number of environmental organizations, Friends of the Earth, Sea Shepherds, and uh, was just one of the, he actually created the Modern Sierra Club, and he was one of the national leaders in the field, and both, both of these men with seminal influences. And one other that I want to add, which is going to sound a little bit oddball, uh, I don't have much use for bosses. I never did and I never will. And um, to, I've never, quite honestly, rarely ever had a boss who really provided guidance, was a mentor. They were basically encumbrances as far as I was concerned. And I, I also never had a job until the last job at EPA that was defined before I got there. Every job I ever had, I, I created. In fact, Toward the end, I created my job at EPA as well. But um, I had one boss when I worked for the New York City Department of Environmental Protection who nobody liked. He was a senior manager, and everybody thought he was just out for self-interest. And I was assigned to bring my group into his shop, and I thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen. This guy, his name was John Bowden. He's passed away now. Uh, and I thought my career was going to come to an end now because this guy was a draconian leader, and he was going to crack the whip, and I'd never get anything done. What I found out when I went to work for John was that all he was about, what he lived and breathed, was bringing support and resources to his staff. And you'd go into his office and he'd say, what do you need, Jeffrey? And I would tell him if I needed a staff person, if I needed money for something, uh, or if I needed to get approval from a senior executive, and he would make it happen. And that became his cause celeb. And he did this for all of his staff. And it was the most amazing experience to have somebody who was not only a mentor, but also who was a facilitator. And that has always been my model for the kind of boss I wanted to be. Wow, that's awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to change a little bit just because you brought up Earth First and Sierra Club. You've probably heard me talk a number of times about um, sort of if you were to take a gradient and going from way on the left over here the way on the right, that uh, in the environmental area, that you could take groups like Earth First and put them way over here on the left. By the way, my left is probably your right if you're looking at this. Um, and then <laughs> over on the right, I've said, probably you take somebody like Ted Nugent um, and say that's probably way over on the right. And then I'd say colonomics is kind of in the middle. What Dennis Weaver put together and what I'm, I think I'm probably promoting today and clearly when I was 16 I was way over here on the left um, and I think I went through a point in my life where I went farther to the right too but I think I've ended up here in the middle I, tell me because I'm not following it as closely as I used to is there a group that's more radical on the left out there than what Earth First is today is there somebody out there a little more even left winging you know of uh, unfortunately, I don't follow it as well, and I'm not. I don't even think Earth First is active. Friends of the Earth has become a little bit more to left than what they were. I'm sorry, to the right rather than what they were when they started. Uh, I don't. I don't follow it. I imagine there might be some local groups, uh, and I know probably probably as I'm speaking, I'm kind of answering the question. Probably some of the groups that are involved in Native American issues. Uh, would be characterized as being more direct action oriented and a bit to the left. Um, I'm thinking about, um, oh God, I can't remember the name, a Native American organization. Uh, I'll There's look it up. Of them. 
Yeah. You know what? Uh, I don't think they're anywhere near Earth first. Um, and I've said <laughs> this. And I, Earth first is still out there. They, they don't get nearly the press anymore. But honestly, Earth first really can't find a place for humans. Um, and and they are so far on the radical left that they will. They're proud of activism that basically, you know, would would be targeting and and destroying a uh, a trawler, for example, out in the ocean, or a, um, someone in a mining community. You know, their their literally violence is clearly not something they're adverse to as it relates to uh, to actions. So. But, and then on the right, is there anybody that's a little more right-leaning, maybe even the Ted Nugent, but would still be considered by themselves or others as a, as an environmentalist? Nugent's pretty far out there. <laughs> I, I I don't know, but uh, but I you talk about changing perspectives over time, and I I I would rather than say I'm left or right, just undefined, be undefined. I I have to admit, I was there was a time when I felt. Landscapes need to, need to be protected from people, and people should not be in landscapes. And my and my perspective has shifted radically over the years because there is no such thing as an untouched landscape. In fact, the great northern forests of northeast United States were actually forests. You know, research has shown were actually forests that were very much manipulated by the native peoples to create uh, nut trees and other trees that sustain them. Uh, we do have a place in the environment. We are part of the natural world. In fact, that's one of my, my themes when I teach. And uh, uh, we need to find a way to resonate with the natural world, to come back home, not to be kept out with the fence. Let's do this. Let me ask you one more question, and we're going to put, you're going to go into your presentation, and maybe as you do it, I might come up with a couple more. This is the one that I say is always a little bit, a little bit tough. Um, which is, tell us about something that happened in your life that it was really negative. And you don't have, you can be as specific as you want, or you can be as generic, generic in general. Um, and at the time, it just seemed awful. And now you look back on it, and you can actually see that it happened for a really good purpose. And, and the outcome of it over the long term has actually been very beneficial for you in your life. Uh, well, actually, I, I touched on it, but I can go a bit deeper, and that is... Uh, being forced to go to work in the, the corporate world because there were no jobs in environmental protection as my, my first professional job out of grad school. And uh, I, as I said, it was it was a horrible fate. I wanted to be an environmental activist. I wanted to be the, the environmental cop. That was my dream. I was going to be the guy with a badge, which I eventually became, but, but that was that was where I felt I had to be. But it was my cor my corporate experience which radically changed, turned me in a new direction, which which tuned me into sustainable development long before it was a, a popular construct. And that was the realization that we have to work with industry, that we, the environmental groups and the environmental regulators and the environmental activists, as committed as we were to protecting the natural world, we didn't really understand the way the economy functioned, the way industry functioned, and we needed to embrace industry because sort of bring them into the, the mix because they know their businesses, they know their industrial processes, they know their innovations better than anybody from the outside. And unless they were part of the process, 
we were never going to make progress. And that's really the essence of, of sustainable development. And I only learned that because I was in the corporate world. And had I not been forced to go to work in the corporate world, had Ronald Reagan not decimated EPA and, and the Solar Energy Research Institute organizations I wanted to work with, uh, and I ended up in that world, I don't know where I would be today, but I don't think I would have had the perspectives that I now have. Awesome. Well, let's, um, let's transition. Um, I've actually got your second slide up here on the screen, and I will go through the slides. I'll move back to the first one here. Um, and, and then if you don't mind, you just, you just prompt me when you want me to change one. And why don't you go ahead and do this? And then at the end, if there's other questions, by the way, Robert says, desert solitaire is inspiring. Um, not man apart was part of David Brower's, David Browser's ability, excuse me, um, to keep morphing and keeping ahead of being cooped by corporate and donors, etc., which I agree <laughs> with. Him. I think that really good. Yes, David. David Brown's finest thought was pissing people off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but doing it to where when they when they thought about it afterwards, they went, "Wait a minute, <laughs> maybe that wasn't quite as maybe I shouldn't be as offended as I am. Um, maybe <laughs> yes. this guy." So anyway, let's go ahead. I've got your first slide up here. Why don't you take us through it? And again, if you guys have questions as it goes on, put them up, and I'll interrupt if appropriate. If not, we'll just handle them at the end. Sounds good. So as I mentioned, my career has been very much focused on global environmental issues, national environmental issues, trying to affect change in public policy, whether it be uh, working to, to promote new statutes or actually drafting statutes. Uh, or writing regulation or writing policy directives or trying to influence agencies that do that uh, or working with corporations on the national and global level, all very important work. And the reason I did this work and still feel it's important is for the following. Let me give you some examples for those of you who are not familiar with the, the, the bad news, if you will. Uh, go to the planetary boundaries slide, uh, Wayne. Next slide. Yeah, uh, this is a representation of the global predicament where we are right now, and it was developed by uh, by two people, Johan Rostrom from the Stockholm Resilience Institute, if I'm not mistaken, is the name, and a researcher in Australia by the name of Will Steffen, and it's called uh, planetary boundaries construct and basically what it is is looking at major systems on the planet and attempting to profile how much we are impacting those systems and it's color-coded and the colors are obvious green is good uh, yellow is warning and red is bad and the if you look at some of the major systems you could see that we are we as humans are having a profound negative impact on the functioning of global systems uh, genetic diversity this is um, uh, loss of biodiversity is, is profound. Uh, extinction rates are, I think, a thousand times higher than background. And we are losing species at an alarming rate. And we don't know yet what this means in terms of functional diversity, meaning having sufficient mix of organisms within individual ecosystems such that those ecosystems continue to function adequately. The jury is still out on that. But certainly in terms of 
of species loss, it is incredibly high. Uh, another example is, is biochemical flows. The, the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that we're putting into the environment, primarily from agricultural sources, is, is devastating. Uh, many of the dead zones that we see in uh, major estuaries, uh, such as uh, water bodies such as the Gulf of Mexico or the Chesapeake Bay here in the northeast part of the United States, are the result of uh, this loading of nutrients, which as the name implies, once those nutrients get into the water, they create algal blooms, and those algal blooms die off, and, and the, the, the creatures biodegrade, and that draws the oxygen out of the water, and as a result, uh, other marine organisms cannot survive in that environment. And I think, I don't remember which one, Wayne, you might remember, but either nitrogen or phosphorus, human loading of this chemical into the environment is now higher than, than natural flows of this chemical, of this nutrient in the environment. It might be phosphorus. But as you can see by the chart, we are well in the danger zone in terms of loading of these nutrients. And as I said, much, much of this is coming from agriculture and not necessarily because we absolutely need uh, this loading to feed people. It's a result of existing agricultural practices, our ever-increasing dependence on, sorry Wayne, <laughs> on meat production, uh, and uh, <laughs> using conventional systems. Uh, there are some wonderful alternatives like holistic management, which we can get to later on, which dramatically reduce well, the amount of nutrient way, loading. I apologize, but, but the relevance is to the fact that I am a, a meat producer, but I am not an advocate, an advocate of large livestock from a, from a global perspective. I, I've said very clearly many times, we need to figure out how we can get our protein source from rabbits, chickens, guinea pigs, crickets, um, and, and not from these high level herbivores like a cow, um, for example. So anyway, um, by the way, Right, it is phosphorus. The worst thing about phosphorus is also we have a limited amount of it. So not only are we polluting with the limited amount that we have, we can't reuse or we haven't figured out ways to. And and that phosphorus, once it has caused its damage, is ultimately gone, and we don't know where we're gonna get more from an agricultural perspective. It's a, we've gone past peak phosphorus and, and we may or may not be past peak, peak oil. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, and uh, the source of the phosphorus now, uh, I think we have, there's still a small supply that comes from Florida, if I'm not mistaken, here in the US. Uh, uh, Morocco and China, I think, are the other two major sources. Uh, China, not terribly friendly to providing critical resources to the United States, push comes to shove, and Morocco, a potentially unstable region. Uh, so there's a, a geopolitical imperative to get, to, to reduce our usage or maybe find other sources. Uh, but I've had conversations with the, uh, the fertilizer industry, and they very candidly say, yes, these are serious societal issues, but there are issues, the shortage, potential shortage of phosphorus, but there are issues that don't play out on a business time frame, meaning that we probably won't see critical, we won't reach critical, criticality of, of sources of phosphorus for maybe as much as 100 or 150 years, doesn't fit the business cycle. So they understand the bigger issues, but they basically say, that's government's responsibility. We're, we're operating on the much shorter time frames. Right. Uh, so, By the way, that, that's a point for a longer discussion another time because there's a group of really fairly prominent scientists that think we're going to be out of phosphorus by 2050. 
So oh. it's it's not not nearly as far out as some might want to want to think it is. Anyway, uh, yeah. enough enough uh, enough from the from the the gallery. By the way, keep going. <laughs> okay. So this this is this chart is just a characterization of the imperative for action. Uh, go on to the next slide, Wayne. This, this slide is another characterization of some of the, the challenges that human civilization is placing on the biosphere. This is a summary of, a, of the results of something called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which was an assessment conducted by the United Nations between the years 2001 and 2005 that identified the condition of ecosystem services on the planet. And ecosystem services are essentially the services rendered by the natural world to human civilization as a result of the natural capital stocks that basically are the biosphere, is the biosphere. And as you can see from this chart, most of the natural resource ecosystem services are degraded and are being diminished 60% according to the study. And what's very intriguing about this and is not an, an obvious uh, conclusion to people who take a fast look at this chart, when you look at those ecosystem services that are enhanced, they are the ecosystem services that are, that re are the result of man's intervention but still come from the natural world, uh, crops, livestock, aquaculture, carbon sequestration. Those are enhanced because of human endeavor but to the detriment of other ecosystem services uh, so or other natural capital stocks actually. And it, it raises the point that yes, we are very fortunate to be living in a time where many people uh, have been lifted out of hunger and poverty uh, because of modern civilization, because of our ability to produce more crops, produce more livestock, uh, other ecosystem services, man, human, human um, uh, uh, ecosystem services that are, that are derived from human intervention in part, uh, but we're drawing down many other natural systems and we need to find a way to, to change this relationship or we will, we will cease to have the, the abundance of crops and livestock. And uh, I'll get to this in a later slide. Uh, actually, the next slide, if you would, Wayne. Much of my work, as I mentioned now, is in the agricultural realm. When I was at, in Washington, it was focused on working with large agribusiness, now focused much on local agriculture here in my region. Uh, and agriculture is one of the aspects of human, human endeavor that is going to be most severely impacted by climate change. And what this uh, chart represents is a compilation that was conducted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as part of their, uh, I think, 2014 compilation, or I'm sorry, fifth assessment report, I think it's the most recent comprehensive report of this international organization, where they looked at over a thousand studies of the likely impact of climate change on agricultural yields. And these studies, this is really a hodgepodge, and they freely admit it's a hodgepodge. They grabbed every study they could find that looked at impact on agricultural yield. And some of these studies are global, some of them are regional, some of them cover a short time frame, some of them cover a longer time frame. Uh, very few actually looked at what would happen to agricultural yields above an increase in four degrees Celsius, uh, an increase in four degrees Celsius above, Celsius rather, of temperatures above pre-industrial levels. But if you take a look at this chart, it is scary. Uh, because as we, in the period that we're in right now, 2010 through 2029, 
many of the studies say that there are areas uh, around the world where agricultural yields are being diminished, but there are also areas where, because of increased temperature, increased rainfall, yields are actually going up. And actually, I live in one of these areas, in the Casco Mountains of upstate New York. We're in an area that we're, where we're seeing slightly increased temperatures, more rainfall, and our yields are going up. Uh, but as you move out through the 21st century, you see that, that there are far more areas around the world where we're not only likely to see declines in agricultural yield, but we're also likely to see entire collapsing of agricultural systems. And this is a horrifying uh, presentation to say the least but it is also let's let's put on a business hat for a moment it's also a business strategy uh, illustration and actually I had a client last summer that was a, uh, a major uh, agricultural commodities company and they brought me and a modeler in as consultants to look at the data from the intergovernmental panel on climate change and actually uh, tuned it specifically for their company, meaning what commodities are they buying and selling, where are they sourcing those commodities. And we identified impacts on their supply chains uh, in the near term, in this 2029 time frame, and then out into the future. And we had mixed responses. Uh, they understood that they needed to change their source of supply because areas where they were currently sourcing might not be able to meet their demand. Uh, they were even willing to have conversations with some of the brokers that they were dealing with who were in turn working with producers about uh, changing contractual relationships actually encourage climate, what's called climate smart agriculture. Those were two very good outcomes. They were changing their existing business practices and willing to have, uh, have a positive impact on, on their uh, sort of business ecosystem. When we failed miserably was in getting them to look at the longer term and to realize that there'd be radical changes in their business model over time and they needed to take action now to prepare them for what's likely to happen 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And again, the, we, our client was the strate strategic planning group for this corporation and they basically said, look, we can't go to the C-suite, the executive suite of our company and say, we want you to invest money uh, for results that are not going to manifest for 30, 40 years down the road. It won't fly. We're not doing it. Sorry. Leave us, leave us alone. So two out of three areas, success. Third area, not so successful. So again, this chart is useful from a societal perspective to say we've got trouble on the horizon and we need to realize that our human civilization is in jeopardy and we need to rethink how we interact with the natural world and how we address climate change. But from a business perspective, this is a strategic planning document, and a business is well would be well advised. Business in the agro, agricultural sector would be well advised to use this as a planning tool. So, with that, let's go on to the next slide. Oh, Wayne, you still there? Oh, yeah, good. Okay. Uh, agriculture is not only the aspect of human endeavor that will be most directly impacted by climate change and for that matter other other areas of environmental degradation it is also one of the leading sources of environmental degradation uh, both in terms of, uh, of contributing to climate change but also contributing to water pollution as well as many other impacts loss of biodiversity across the board so factory farming is the term we've given to big ag and uh, these pictures show rather uh, gruesome uh, 
manifestation of big ag. Uh, the animal welfare issues, if you look at the lower left-hand corner, that's a, a hog house where, where, where hogs are kept in confinement and live their entire lives without being able to move. Uh, the next picture over is a eutrophied stream with an algal bloom. Uh, the third picture, to, all the way in the lower right-hand corner, is a beef feedlot. Uh, the large picture in the center is another hog farm and a big lagoon where the hog waste is, is dumped and supposedly applied on the land, but not necessarily at what's called agronomic rates, meaning uh, at nutrients at a rate that can actually be taken up by the crops and, as a nutrient, but often that runs off and contributes to the algal blooms and the other pollution problems. And the, uh, the picture up in the upper right-hand corner, I think, is just a, uh, a storage facility for grain because it looks like a grain elevator off in the back. Uh, but I would love to say agriculture is evil, wag my finger and say, you people have got to change. But somebody's eating this food. I had a ham sandwich yesterday, folks. Uh, I understand that I'm part of this picture, too. And uh, I'm going to get to this topic a little bit later in my presentation. But yes, industry is, uh, is, is the driver here. Two-thirds of the agricultural contribution to climate, I'm sorry, excuse me, four-fifths of the agricultural contribution to climate change is for animal production, for, uh, for livestock production. Uh, so we need to explore, as Wayne was, was alluding to before, how we live and how we interact and in turn try to have an impact on the ag sector to change the way they operate. But it's, it's much too easy just to blame industry and not understand that we are, we are part of the process. Uh, next slide. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.